Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. If you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Paul Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. We've got a packed edition of Sports Business Radio for you this week. Sports Business Radio co-founder Keith Foreman is going to join me to discuss one of the biggest sports business stories we've covered in this show's 19-year history, the acquisition of the PGA Tour by the Saudi-backed PIF. There are so many different layers to this story, which caught many people by complete surprise. We're going to cover that on our show this week. Also, Scott Reams, Nike historian emeritus. He's going to help set the record straight on the real story behind Nike's recruitment of signing Michael Jordan, which is portrayed in the Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Viola Davis, Jason Bateman movie, Air. Reams worked as the historian for Nike for 17 years. He's been on with us before. Uh, We're going to play a little game of fact and fiction. So that's what's coming up on our show. But before we get to those, Greg, some big headlines. Number one, the Denver Nuggets and our friend Declan Bolger have won their first NBA championship. They beat the Miami Heat four games to one. What do you think? Yeah, Denver, I mean, all year, what a team. I think they they clearly were the the front runner all year, and they just meshed well. Great coach team. Management's great. The team is stacked. I mean, you got the Joker. He's incredible. Jamal Murray, phenomenal. And all those moving parts around him, you know, Aaron Gordon and and Michael Porter. I mean, it's just a team effort. They they just killed it. They looked great. I'm so happy for the city and Declan. And I mean, the, the crowd was uh, just going nuts. I felt so so excited for them. Denver, <laughs> Denver's probably going to be a disaster for the next week, but uh, they deserve it. You know, first championship ever. And uh, what a fun series. They deserved it. So history made by the Joker. First player in NBA history to lead the entire playoffs in scoring, rebounds, and assists. We may never see that again. I wow. mean... Who's going to do that where you lead in those three major categories? So it just tells you what a dominant run he had. Jamal Murray, healthy. Uh, Porter Jr., healthy. You know, health plays such a big part in yep. these runs as well. So congratulations to the Denver Nuggets and a tip of the cap to Coach Spo and the Miami Heat. 
an eight seed making the NBA finals, mm-hmm. knocked off the Bucks, knocked off the Knicks, knocked off the Celtics, and you know, gave the Nuggets everything they wanted and more. So one of Coach Spo's best coaching jobs that he's done in Miami. You know, Jimmy Butler doesn't look like he's going to make any excuses, but there was obviously something wrong with him after that uh, New York series where he turned his ankle. He just had no elevation. He had no lift. He did not look like the same player that played in the Milwaukee series or the first half of the the Knicks series. So, you know, no excuses, um, but, you know, he just didn't look like the same player. The Las Vegas Golden Knights, they're on the verge of their first title. They are up three games to one against the Florida Panthers in the Stanley Cup Finals. So, Griggs, by the time we record next week's show, um, we could be looking at a new Stanley Cup champion as well. So two first-time champions potentially in the NBA and the NHL. Yeah, and that makes it fun. I think as a fan, uh, it's fun because it's fun to have new blood in there, some new teams getting to these cities that are, you know, Vegas is on fire with sports. They're adding teams right and left, and it's exciting to see them winning too because that makes it even more fun. But uh, yeah, it's fun to have some new teams in there. Uh, the Stanley Cup's been fun. I've been watching it. Vegas is a dominating team. They look really good. I think they should win this fairly handily probably tonight, but we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's good to see Denver in, and I agree. Coach Spo in Miami, what a showing. I mean, that was uh, fun to watch them play and what they did throughout the playoffs. So uh, fun to see these finals wrapping up. So it could be a rough couple days for South Florida with the Heat and the (laughs) Panthers going down. But again, both eight seeds, they're playing with house money. No one expected them to be in this situation. All right, another huge story in the past week. Lionel Messi, the greatest soccer player on planet Earth, is going to enter Miami of Major League Soccer. Griggs, already we're seeing the Messi effect. Um, Six million new Instagram followers for Inter Miami, 4,500% increase in merch sales, which he gets a part of, according to multiple reports, is he's going to get a part of the Adidas profits. Um, a 1,200% jump in ticket prices. Not only are the Inter Miami games sold out the rest of the season, all the games on the road that he's <laughs> playing in are sold out the rest of the season. So um, the other part of this, too, is according to multiple reports, he's going to get a share of the Apple TV deal. So you would think because he's coming to MLS, that will boost Apple TV signups. He's going to get a piece of that as well. So much like when David Beckham came to Major League Soccer years ago and got a sweetheart deal. And actually, it's led to this where he owns Inner Miami. He bought the team for a paltry $25 million, way below market value. Some people are saying that with Messi on board, Inter-Miami could be valued at a billion dollars. Obviously, that's just on paper unless you try and sell the team. But long story short, Griggs, the biggest athlete on the planet is coming to the United States. He's coming to Miami, and it's having a huge impact on Major League Soccer and on Inter-Miami. Yeah, let's just say Messi's not hurting for money. Uh, he's going to be doing just no. fine <laughs> after all this. But yeah, I mean, he's the GOAT. He is uh, absolutely phenomenal to watch play. And uh, that first game, when he's playing his first game in Miami, I mean, the ratings are going to be crazy. The, the world's going to be watching that game. So that's going to be fun to see. But, uh, you know, Miami, I think they're last place in East, in the East right now. So, I mean, this they is going to be interesting to see, can this, you know, the GOAT come in here and lift this team from nothing into, uh, you know, a trophy winning team. So, yeah, that is going to be such a fun story. And the numbers I just keep seeing all week from people tweeting and you've been tweeting them out too. Uh, it's just crazy how much they have changed. He has single-handedly changed that franchise and he's not even in the country yet. So it's pretty nuts. 
Well, just to show you the power that he has on social media, just on Instagram, forget about any other platform, just on Instagram. Messi has more followers than Taylor Swift, LeBron James, Tiger Woods, Patrick Mahomes, and Serena Williams combined. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just ludicrous That's how many nuts. followers he has. So he can put out one Instagram post saying, hey, sign up for Apple TV, or hey, buy my jersey right. uh, with Adidas, or hey, you know, promoting a sponsor. And it's worth millions of dollars because it's going out to millions of people. Yeah. So when you talk about the power of social media reach, I don't know that there's anyone on planet Earth that has a much bigger reach than Messi does. Yeah, I mean, and he's a world athlete. Like everybody, every corner of the world knows who Messi right. is. You could go to a jungle in Africa and ask somebody and they'd be like, yeah, I know Messi. I play, I kick right. the ball around every day. I mean, it's like he's so world renowned and world famous that you're right. One little one little tweet or one Instagram post and it's instantly impressing, you know, millions and millions of people. So it's pretty crazy. Well, and leading Argentina to the World Cup late last year certainly didn't hurt his legend, right? (laughs) Right. And gave him even more negotiating power for something like this. And, you know, he knows if he truly wants to rule the world, so to speak, um, you know, being a big factor in the United States and coming and playing here for a little bit um, is a big part of that. So we'll continue to follow this story. There's a lot of layers to this. We just don't have time for it this week. Our last headline, the U.S. Open is this week. It's in Los Angeles. Huge media market. And as you're going to hear in our next segment with Keith Foreman, you know, this deal with the PGA Tour and PIF, um, you know, they're in a huge media market. There's going to be a lot of media in LA covering the US Open. So the players are going to have a lot of questions to answer. Um, Everyone associated with PGA Tour is going to have a lot of questions to answer. It's going to be interesting to see how much more detail we receive. Um, This is LA country club where they're going to play. You know, the one person that we have not heard from is the face of golf, Tiger Woods. So we heard from Rory. We haven't heard anything from Tiger. Is Tiger going to speak out around the open? If they ask him to remain quiet until after the um, open is done, but it's going to be really interesting to see what Tiger Woods says, because again, Tiger and Rory turned down tens of millions of dollars from live to go play with them. Um, And you would think they're probably not going to be thrilled with this deal, um, or at least they're going to need to be compensated for turning down the tens of millions that they did previously. So uh, this is a pretty in-depth conversation coming up with Keith Foreman. So I think we cover a lot of the angles on this. And then the last thing, Greg, that I just remembered is, uh, Keep an eye on the NBA this week. They're supposed to be handing out the suspension for Ja Morant. Right. And that's going to be interesting to see what Adam Silver does as well. I can tell you my old friend David Stern would have probably thrown a season at him or at least the regular season and said, maybe you could come back for the playoffs. And he would have required for Ja Morant to go get help. And he would want to see proof that the help worked. Um, Obviously, you know, the conversation that Ja Morant and Adam Silver had the first time around wasn't effective with Ja Morant. So now, you know, what are you going to do? And for all the people out there going, oh, it was a toy gun or, oh, he didn't do anything wrong. Or Look, it is a privilege to play professional sports. Ja Morant is making $200 million. He is the face of the Memphis Grizzlies. He's one of the faces of the NBA. This is not the brand that your league wants 
out there and it's happened multiple times now. So he deserves to be suspended as anyone would who was a repeat offender and had done this same thing. And, you know, if this is 10 games or 15 games, I am going to be a little disappointed. And I, I think Adam Silver needs to be more harsh. Like I said, I think David Stern would give him the entire regular season. Um, and then, you know, that opens up other things like, do the Grizzlies say, you know what, we're moving off of John Morant. We're not putting up with this behavior. He's unpredictable. We can't count on him. Now you're moving one of the young stars of the NBA. And does another team look at this and go, hey, once we get this guy in our locker room, we've got some vets here. We can you know, manage him better than he was managed in Memphis. Everyone thinks they can rehab everyone. Everyone thinks they can fix anyone who's injured. Like, right. you know, old teams think they can do better with a, a star player like this. But Griggs, that's going to be an interesting story to watch this week. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the NBA season just ended last night and here we are, a major story right off the top, which we knew was coming. But, um, you know, these major leagues, we talk about it. There's, there's so much off-season stuff. Uh, that happens when the season's not going on that keeps them relevant. And the NBA is right there. NFL is the same same deal. But, you know, you've got John Morant and you got the draft here in a little over a week. Then you got, you know, free agency stuff and all that stuff. So it's an ongoing story. But, yeah, I think uh, I agree with you. I think it's got to be it's got to be a, a very big suspension because uh, this this has to get fixed. And, and it, needs, it needs to be an example to, you know, if it happens to some other player, you know, they got to set these standards so they know what to do if it happens down the road to somebody else. But He's a huge player, and uh, he's got to get this fixed to to keep him relevant and keep him. Li- I mean, he's such a likable guy. It feels like you love watching him play. You get excited about it. It's fun, and he's a fun player to watch. And hopefully, he can get this figured out. All right, coming up next, Keith Foreman, co-founder of Sports Business Radio. We dig into this PGA uh, PIF deal. This is not a merger, folks. This was an outright acquisition from the PIF of the PGA Tour. Lots of layers to this story. We'll try and cover as many of them as possible. Coming up next, then it's Scott Reams from Nike. He was the historian there for 17 years. We're going to dig into the storylines of air and play a little game of fact or fiction. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, at NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo 
for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. All right, we are back. And one of the biggest sports business deals that's been done since we launched this show back in 2004 went down in the last week. And we wanted to break it down as best we can here on Sports Business Radio. And to do that, I'm joined by the co-founder of Sports Business Radio, Keith Foreman. Keith, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I love breaking down stuff like this with you. Like when uh, the pandemic started and we did the emergency pod, you came on. Like when big stuff happens, you're a good person to have back on the show. Yeah, all the big ones. (laughs) And this one was big. And really kind of out of left field. I think this caught a lot of people off guard. Um, Supposedly, this deal was discussed as early as April. Um, You know, and again, a lot of these deals get done because of litigation, right? And this was litigation. PGA Tour was reportedly spending $50 million on this, which is a good part of their budget on legal fees. They were seeing that uh, the... PIF was going to continue to drag this out and they were going to spend a lot more money on legal fees. So, you know, as we've discussed on this show for many years, a lot of times when things are in court, whether it's because you don't want discovery coming out or you're running out of money, things tend to get settled or deals like this tend to get made. And I think it's no different than this one when we kind of reflect on it. Yeah, this deal, it's not even a deal. This is like, this isn't even a sports story. This is a global business story. And if you go back and research, you know, where Saudi Arabia was, you know, five years ago, three years ago, a year ago, and what they're trying to do to grow their economy and be in better graces around the world, that explains this and their investment in all kinds of other sports and entertainment vehicles. But what's interesting about their decision to invest in Gaul is that it's now led to a mutually destructive path for both the Live Tour and the PGA Tour. Because you can't tell, you know, a lot of people were immediately upon hearing about this news, oh, Live won. No, they didn't. Live was a disaster, but it was part of quote unquote Operation Wedge, which you can read about in the New York Times or number of other places, which was their way to get into this golf market. Right. And so what ended up happening was the PGA was losing money, like you just said, spending millions and millions on on uh, lawyer fees. Right. They were losing sponsors, Honda, AT&T. You had major sponsors stepping away. Meanwhile, Liv was never set up as a for-profit venture. They were bleeding they would have bled close to a billion dollars by the time this season ends. So, and then they, they couldn't get a TV deal and the ratings were so abysmal. They stopped even reporting what few ratings they had. So, I mean, both tours were heading in really bad directions. Yeah. And to put it in perspective, according to reports, the, the PIF fund has about $60 billion in it. So, um, try 650 billion. Okay, well, then I I read the wrong report. So the point is, this fund has a lot of money, okay? And they're able to invest in sports. Like you said, they identified golf as a a main vehicle. But let's get a few things straight, just some facts here. Number one is, this was not a merger. 
PGA and Liv did not merge. What was the media? I mean, I know there was very little information that came out the day it happened, but right. the re- early reporting on this was horrible. It was. So PIF is now the largest investor in the PGA Tour. Parsh- yeah, they're a financial partner. Right. And the way this is structured is, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but Yasir El- Oromian. Yeah, he's the chairman. And for the time being, Jay Monahan. Hold on. He reports to Mohammed bin Salman. Right. The the head of Saudi Arabia. Right. Yeah. Right. And then Jay Monahan is serving as the CEO of this new entity. And as I pointed out on Twitter this week, if you're a fan of the show Succession, he is the pain sponge. He is the Tom Wamsgans of this deal. And I don't know how Jay Monahan survives in the long run. Um, I think he'll last for a while as the pain sponge as this deal transitions. But I think over the long term, the PGA Tour players and certainly the live players have lost respect for Jay Monahan. They don't trust him. And I think at some point he's probably going to be out, but I'm sure he'll have his golden parachute and it's going to be interesting to see how this thing is structured, but let's make no mistake. This is not a merger. This is an acquisition or a huge investment by the Saudi government into the PGA tour, right? Yeah. Well, they haven't spent any money yet. This is all just memos, memos of understanding. There's right. not a single dollar that has been allocated to anything. The only thing that this quote unquote, I guess, um, partnership has Done like the absolute known quantities, and these were the goals of Jay at this at this time. It sounds like were to stop with the litigation, uh, to stop with what PGA was suing Live for, what Live was suing PGA for, because that was just that was going nowhere, and right. it was going to go on for a long time. Um, and then the other thing that it accomplishes for the PGA is it pretty much now moves the decision making forward on what will happen to the Live tour, right? And the way that's run in the hands of the PGA, um, I guess, competition uh, decision makers. So so there's a gentleman named Jimmy Dunn, mm. and he is a PGA Tour policy board member. He was reportedly one of the very few people in the room as this deal was being made. And here's what he has said. He has said that the golfers who remain loyal to the PGA Tour would receive equity shares through a yet-to-be-determined formula in the new for-profit enterprise formed this week between the PGA Tour, DP World Tour, and PIP. So there will be some sort of uh, equity-sharing model. We don't know how it's going to be tiered. Are Tiger and Rory paid more than you know some of the other players? We don't know. Um, and then the players who left for the Live Golf League would not be able to participate in the new company's equity plan. And that supposedly Jay Monahan would have oversight over Live Golf. We know he has not been a fan of Live Golf. He's fought against it. But this, Keith, is where there's so many things that need to be unwound. And one is that, you know, Jay Monahan very harshly spoke out against Live Golf and where the money was coming from. And 9-11 and all of these other things. And now 
what the media has done in the last week is they brought all the receipts, right? They've shown all of the interviews that Jay Monahan did, and they're saying, hey, he really changed his tune. Now he doesn't seem to have a problem with where this money's coming from in order to, you know, have this new deal place. So there's so much to unpack here. So right. basically what you just described is Jay Monahan is the vice pr- principal of, dis- of discipline. Um, so if you get in trouble, if you get a detention or, you know, you did something you're not supposed to, you have to go to see the vice principal and then you get your set. So he's going to now play that role for the former PGA players that went to live that supposedly want to come back. So he's, that. he's the pain sponge. Yeah. Right. So, but you know what? Jay Monaghan is an unfortunate character. He happened to be in the role of commissioner of PGA during a pretty difficult time frame. So I, I, a lot of this could have been avoided, right? I mean, as just a consumer of PGA tour golf on television, maybe attending a few events over the years, I had grown so tired and disgusted with it. And I know I'm not alone in saying this kind of stuff, but just the the broadcasts were so stale and so old and stuffy, so wrinkled. And I'm sorry, Jim Nance. Hello, friends. Great. You can keep doing the masters. I know you've retired from, from, uh, March madness, from March madness, but I just couldn't deal with the, the old timey shout outs to the membership at wing. I mean, let's call it what it is. Prime rib dinner. We shared. It's a white elitist sport. Exactly. And the broadcast reflected that. Right. And it was awful, 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 awful. And by the way, as we have this conversation, let's keep in mind here, golf is not a widespread sport, neither as people who play it because it's very expensive and, and by people who watch it. When we're talking NFL or, you know, uh, World Cup or things like that, very few people are watching golf in comparison to the mainstream sports, college football. But I would argue that, you know, like every sport, you have to evolve. And a lot of people play golf. And a lot more people started playing golf during the pandemic over the last four years. Yeah, And yet this pro tour just felt stale as ever. Right. So you have a lot of moving forces and things kind of happening simultaneously. So to me, um, had Jay Monaghan decided I'm not going to just sit here and do nothing over the past five years, but actually decided, yeah, we do need to spice up our sport a little bit. We do need to, to have a few different types of tournaments. Um, we need to look at a team game concept. We need to look at more match play type, uh, situations and skins games and all the fun stuff that's potentially out here. I don't blame Phil Mickelson and, and Greg Norman at all for pushing this alternative approach to the game. The problem is they were just so unlikable as, as individuals. And so I think there was a lot of personal issues and animosity that existed between these key players. Um, I mean, it's really, let me just interrupt for a minute. It's interesting that you bring up Phil and Greg Norman. If this had been Tiger and Jack Nicholas, this would have been looked at completely differently, correct? Right. But because they're not very likable characters, um, they were received very differently. Now, what you said is PGA Tour never, they had a monopoly. No one ever came along and said, maybe we should look at the team concept. Maybe we should look at being able to wear shorts. Maybe we should look at match play, skins games, all of these things. And 
now there was competition to force that type of, you know, let's re-examine the game of golf and how it should be played, how it should be broadcast, how it should be consumed. But it's funny. So many people really dislike Phil Nicholson at the beginning of this. And I think after this week, they're going to look at him and go, he might have just been the one who reshaped golf more than anyone else in this equation. And by the way, no lies were told, even though he's denied saying this, when he said, those are some scary MFers, right? Like he's, okay, true, probably. But everything else he said, yeah, they did need to re-examine. They needed to reach a younger demo. They needed to change up the stuffy elitist form of golf that we have consumed for 50 years. Yeah, we're, listen, we can spend hours talking about, you know, Saudi you know, human rights abuses and all that. That's another conversation. Right, and it's a hundred percent real and legitimate fact yes. is when you fill your car with gas, that's Saudi oil. So I don't know. You can get into a really complicated, messy right. um argument about, you know, um the atrocities and and on and on and on. But because this is a sports business show, we're just gonna break down right. essentially what's happened. So what we can also get into the weeds on all of the uh, forces that are now colliding within the game of golf and the golf industry itself. But the real bigger picture is Saudi Arabia wanting to do something, whether it be in Formula One or in Premier League soccer or in hosting the Olympics or in golf to further their economic development goals and their brand and reputation around the world. So that's the bigger story. And they found in Norman and Mickelson, two guys that had their own personal issues. Right. And so again, if you go back and read Operation Wedge, you can see how they were perfect foils, you know, for this long-term Saudi strategy. And in the end, from the Saudis' perspective, you could argue that everybody in the golf industry is just collateral damage. Do the Saudis really care about Patrick Reed and Bryson DeChambeau and how this impacts right. them? No. Yeah. Do they really care about Greg Norman and and Phil Mickelson? I don't know. Maybe uh, Yasser does on on some personal level because of them being in the trenches together and developing this this live golf. But if Jay is truly the the, the vice principal now moving forward, he's going to. How does he keep live around? I mean, yes, you can still do team golf, but that brand. Right. I can't imagine how we see that brand next year. Yeah, I, so most people think that Live is done after this year. So they won't make it to 2024. The new entity will be formed, whatever that is. They will have to figure out how are we going to bring the Live guys back into the fold? How are the PGA Tour players that stayed compensated? Is that a tiered approach or is it like one size fits all and everyone gets the same payment for remaining with the PGA Tour? Probably not. You have things like, uh, you know, TGL Golf owned by Tiger and Rory. Um, that is, you know, six teams made up of PGA Tour players. It's launching in January of 2024. Does someone come along and write TGA Golf a um, huge check? And that's the backdoor way to pay Tiger and Rory. By the way, Serena Williams and Alexis Ohanian, they purchased the first TGL golf team this week in Los Angeles. So, um, you know, that's going to be an entity. There are so many things yet to be answered, but 
The other part of this too is what does this mean to the outside forces? So sponsors of the PGA Tour, the media partners, like are these deals going to need to be redone based on the new shape of what this is? Or do the existing deals just remain in place and that's what you have? Also, you know, as I pointed out on Instagram earlier this week when I did a few minutes on this is you had the live players lose sponsors, personal sponsors as part of this, no one more so than Phil. And do sponsors come back and say, you know what, as part of this new normal, okay, we'll sponsor Phil Mickelson, we'll sponsor Brooks Kepka or Bryson DeChambeau or Bubba Watson or whoever it is again. That's going to be interesting to see how that develops in the future. Is the coast clear to sponsor the live golfers since the PGA Tour is basically said like, okay, we're taking investment from the PIF fund, which as you said, is, is Saudi based. So there's so many different angles to now consume this story and try right. to track certain. Yeah. You can track this purely from a political standpoint. And uh, you can certainly imagine that the Saudi Arabian government would prefer that someone like a Donald Trump win the next election versus a Joe Biden. I mean, we know that MBS has, 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 you know, had multiple, um, uh, approaches to inflicting harm on the U S when it comes to energy policy and, and, and oil prices and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you, there are Congress people, senators, congressmen and women right now who are saying we are absolutely looking into the antitrust issues that now exists, because that's another thing that is going to play itself out in a big way. If already Liv was crying that the PGA was a monopoly, right? And now it's essentially all one big single company. Uh, how is that not a monopoly? Right. So, you know, you're going to, you're going to have a ton of people looking into Well, that. and what this does too, like a lot of people, you know, shut up and dribble, just stick to sports. This has shown once and for all. That sports is political and oftentimes it's backed by money that may not come from a place that we all think is the greatest place. And um, it's very politicized. And at the end of the day, for the long term health of the PGA Tour, they decided we don't care where the money comes from. We need the money. And even if it comes from an area that we've been critical of for the last two years, we're still going to take the money so we can continue to exist. Because there is a scenario where they were going to be bled dry with legal fees and with having to keep up with the uh, purses and all of these things. That was not a sustainable model well, for the PGA Tour. Yeah, so if we're going to say on this legal um, subject, then it was also the discovery. I mean, we were starting to get to the point in both of these cases um, where... Uh, lots of evidence and discovery was going to come out. Right. And people did not want that, that aired in public. Yeah. So the combination of that and the mounting tens of millions of dollars of legal fees. Right. You know, I'm, I've joked that, if, you know, Jay Monahan had to go in front of the players and explain what has happened. All he has to do is literally write 650 billion in big, bold numbers right. with all the commas and the and the zeros on a whiteboard and say there you go yeah. there's your reason we can't compete with that well and as i've said on this show for 19 years for good or for bad everyone has their price 
And for the PGA Tour, it was $650 billion or access to that type of a fund, right? Like we don't know that the PGA Tour has gotten $650 billion. Well, it's, it's, it's way more nuanced than that. I mean, the fact is the, the, the public investment fund, which is the, the kind of the, the slush fund, if you will, that the Saudis have decided to put all this oil money into to invest around the world. Right. Um, you know, that's the, that total number is what's uh, invested in F1 and, and soccer and all that kind of stuff. If it continues to grow the way financial experts project, it will reach apparently a trillion dollars by 2025. So, I mean, we're talking just tiny, a few billion dollars of that, that, you know, the, the American golf industry, and I guess now the global golf industry, if you kind of include everything. And so somehow, some way, I mean, and this also MBS and, and, and Yasser all, you know, are now at the head of the global golf industry. Right. And well, if they basically just acquired a league, a lot of people have written about this this week. We should not be surprised if in the near future, you see the PIF bid to buy an NBA team or an NFL team or an NHL team or an MLS team. Like it's going to happen at some point. And if you're one of these leagues and you're the commissioner and you're going for the highest price and it's got the trillion dollars in it, do you say no to an offer that comes in at a billion dollars more than someone else? Like there's going to be some real big decisions in the future. And none of us should be surprised uh, when this bid comes in. Brian, I've joked that what if a Saudi prince uh, decided to go to, um, I don't know, the University of Washington mm -hmm. and realized upon getting there, oh my gosh, the Pac-12 is really in financial uh, disorder. Right. I'm going to call my uncle um, and see if he can't just inject a couple billion into the Pac-12 media uh, production, uh, situation, uh, distribution rights situation. Anyway, stupid, but yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, you talk about a story, this story is never ending, right? This thing, cause they're never going to run out of money. Well, politically, legally, financially. I mean, the fact that this broke on CNBC, CNBC right. you know, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. I don't think ESPN or any of the traditional sports outlets could wrap their head around this thing and, you know, at least for a few days, you know, after the fact. Yeah. If you were an executive at one of the media rights holders, one of the partners of the PGA Tour, are you going to Jay Monahan and saying, we need to redo this deal? Or are you saying, let's just status quo it and if we get, you know, Phil and uh, Brooks and DJ and, and some of those golfers back into the fold, like that's gravy. I don't know. I mean, that's think of all the external pressures that brands have to factor in, like from a PR perspective. Exactly right. Uh, exactly uh, right. Uh, uh, profitability standpoint. If you are one of the current sponsors of the PGA Tour, maybe you have an event. Maybe you, you know, have commercial inventory on all the different broadcasts and you are not aligned at all. If you are, you are very much against yeah. um, what Saudi Arabia has done in the past. Uh, do you pull out? And then on the flip side, are there other companies um, that want to do business that are American based and want to do business 
uh, with the Saudi government, you know, military contractors, all the, you know, where they're looking at this lick in their chops saying, ah, oh, finally, you know, I can host the, the Raytheon, you know, Pebble Beach, right. you know, tournament. And, you know, this is where, again, this isn't even about golf. This is about, you know, business development. And the Saudis very wisely identified golf as the quickest way to getting to the, the biggest, highest, most powerful decision right. uh, makers within these American companies. Yeah. And, you know, also the, the complexion of the tour, like where do these events go now? Are we playing golf in China? Are we playing golf in Saudi Arabia? Are we playing, you know, golf in Australia? Are the best golfers in the world playing at all these events? Is there a completely new tour? Yeah. All right. My audience knows that I'm also the founder of the Sports PR Summit. So sometimes we talk about the PR perspective on this. Keith, the way this was announced, the interviews that Jay Monahan did where he basically was caught off guard by the most obvious of questions, Bryson DeChambeau's interview on CNN. I mean, these were a train wreck. And then who are the two people that I would say are the faces of golf who we have yet to hear from and were almost a weekend? Yeah, well. Tiger and Jack. Nothing from Tiger and Jack. Not a word, not a statement put out, nothing. To me, the silence speaks volumes too, right? Of what, endorsement? Well, there's something going on here. So we know, according to multiple reports, that Tiger and Jack were approached by Liv to the point of lucrative money. You know, some people have said... 700 million for Tiger. Yeah, and and at least, you know, 500 million for Jack to be in the Greg Norman right. share. And again, I will reference this Operation Wedge. Just type that into your Google Finder because that breaks down. The, the Saudis years ago identified, you can, we cannot disrupt the, go, the global golf industry, the American golf industry, unless... We've got Tiger Woods on our side. His influence is too embryonic. So my conspiracy theory, and I love to have these every once in a while on this show, is you've got TGL Golf, and it's run by Tiger and Rory in partnership with the PGA Tour. You know, Rory, and these are this is a virtual golf right uh, series, right? And and you know Rory carried a heavy burden in the last year, really serving as de facto PGA Tour commissioner, doing a lot of press conferences, at, answering a lot of questions from the media that Jay Monahan didn't want to deal with, and most of all, forsaking lucrative offers himself in order to join Live and and say no thanks to Live. You know, same thing with Tiger. So I can't imagine that those guys are just going to be like, hey, we're good with just a nominal fee now. So my theory is someone's going to be paying a big amount of money to TGL Golf, whether that's known or unknown, we may never know, but they're going to come out of this in some way, shape, or form with some financial compensation for what they've done, which again is saying no to the live tour. But here's the question, and again, everyone has their price. Do they have a problem with the source of the money? Or are they going to go, you know what, we'll continue to play knowing that this is where the money's coming from? Because it would be really interesting, Keith. And, and I don't think this would work. But what if the top 10 golfers said, we're breaking off, we're starting our own tour, we don't like where this money's coming from, and we're going to do our own thing. 
again, I don't think this will happen, but I think this is such a messy situation that I wouldn't be shocked if at least some of those conversations are taking place somewhere. No way. No possible way. They're, they, um, these guys just want to play golf and they want to play golf for as much money as possible. And if they're going to have to, you know, hold their nose at where the money comes from, I mean, you could twist yourself into a pretzel to explain anything, right? Um, I think that <laughs> at the end of the day, um, it was always going to get to this point. Once it was decided yeah. that the Saudis were going to throw serious, like crazy level money. I think it was Pat Perez on the live tour that put it best. He said something along the lines and I'm going to misquote here. He goes, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's an impossible fight for the, for the PGA. They're bleeding their sponsors for every million dollars they can get. Right. Meanwhile, the Saudis are, they're just money's coming out of the ground. Right. It's just an impossible fight. So even if you were the 10 top players of the world, you wanted to start your own thing. There's not enough corporate support out there with the dollars right. uh, to, to battle against. So it's just like we see in these labor situations with the NFL and the NBA is they always say it's millionaires fighting billionaires. This is the same thing. This is, you know, millionaires fighting maybe trillionaires, right? So I don't disagree with you. I just think, look, Tiger's playing days are mostly done. He might play some majors. So I think even more so, that's why he's going to come and say, I deserve something. But, but, the, but the common thread between Tiger and Rory and players like John Rahm, you know, or even Ricky Fowler, you know, players that made the decision to stay, guys that we know got offered serious right. money. Yeah. Tradition and legacy was a big part of their decision. Right. And, and, and obviously there were enough meetings that took place between Yasser and Jay and, you know, the other, you know, quote unquote deal makers that helped make all this happen. And I think everybody kind of got what they wanted. The PGA gets to stay intact. The Saudis now have a major seat at the table, if not a seat, they literally have a throne at the head of the table. Right. Um, and everybody's going to get to keep essentially what they want. And yes, the PGA is in better shape. Now, could Jay Monahan have put them in a better shape and possibly gone to this same funding source years ago or address the issues that a lot of the players were, were, were complaining about years ago? Absolutely. So he's not, I mean, he's going to come out of this, I think, looking pretty good, but he's part of the problem that got them into this situation in the first place. And then the guys who the media immediately we're like patting on the back and celebrating. We won. We won. People like Greg Norman and Phil Mickelson. I'm not so sure. Yeah. I'm not sure what role Greg Norman has in any of this moving forward. And then there's probably some players that might not be welcomed back with open OR. It was almost kind of like when you had the scabs, so to speak, during, you know, football, the labor strike in right. football or, or the baseball strike in the past. There were certain guys that could never come back into the clubhouse and be, um, you know, looked at or, or shaken hands with, with their former players. And it feels like there's certain guys like Cam Smith or Dustin Johnson, or, you know, even Brooks Kepka that, you know, will be welcomed back, but there's some other guys that may not be. Yeah. All right. So let's end with this. You know, we talked about branding and PR earlier. 
if you're this new entity and you have bashed the Saudis for two years and you've even used 9-11 as a exhibit A in bashing the Saudis, how do you now come out and sell this to media sponsors, fans, and everyone and say, you know what? We backed this for two years, but now we want you to embrace it. I think there's a number of players who can throw their hands up and honestly say, I did what I thought was right. If I want to continue in this sport at the highest level, I guess I just have to swallow it. Do I like it? No. Do I support what's going on with this government? No. But I guess if I want to play golf, this unfortunately is the environment that I have to, to play in. And that was a million times better than answer than the answer that Bryson DeChambeau gave in the CNN interview. And going back to Jay and his PR, you know, chops. Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing to me how some of these guys can reach the level of of commissioner of a sport. Oh my god! You know, Rob Manfred, same right. thing. It's like, dude, you're practicing your golf swing backstage while you're while you're freezing everybody out of the out out of the. Right. You know, it's just like. The way they say things, their body language, there's a certain level of training. Yeah. And apparently Yasser, uh, who heads up the PIF, is a pretty cool cat and keeps things very calm and is a very, you know, um, I guess, professional business person um, and doesn't get all emotional. And anyway, yeah. Point is, there are different ways to approach, you know, this from a PR perspective and the way the PH, PGA has uh, handled it uh, has not been impressive. No, not at all. All right. So, you know, things to watch going forward. What happens with the PGA Tour golfers who passed up on all of the money with Live? What happens with incorporating the Live golfers back into this new golf entity that's backed by the PIF? Uh, media rights partners. Yeah. Sponsors. Yeah. And then fans. I mean, look. Here's the other elephant in the room is it's well known the Saudis treatment of women. And there are a lot of women golf fans. And if you're a woman, do you say, I'm not buying this product or anything associated with it going forward? And even men saying, I don't like this either. What is the relationship between this new partnership and the LPGA? Right. Uh, moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. So many different layers to this, but. Um, it's an interesting story to watch. Like we said, one of the biggest sport business deals that we've seen, um, since we started this show 19 years ago. And, you know, although not shocking, it was pretty much done in the dark of the night. And when the announcement was dropped, Keith, I think we were all pretty surprised and caught off guard. Well, if people like Rory and Tiger were caught off guard, right. then... Clearly, I mean, this thing was done in the most secret possible of ways. <laughs> and that's, I guess, the only way it would have been done. But getting back to your, your comment about the fans, which is so important, this is the other reason why I felt like the PGA totally lost its way. I mean, as it relates to the fans' experience, watching their events on television or going to their events mm -hmm. in person, that was one thing Live Golf got right. Now, you can be an old timey traditionalist and and hate the idea of music uh, on the golf course but guess what millions of people have their little magnetic bluetooth right. speakers on their golf cart and they're listening to music while they play right and also people don't have five hours to go play around a round of golf right. on a wednesday afternoon so 
you know, Lynn did some things, you know, really well to make the game more fun for the fans. The problem it was is it was just done in a bizarre way and in, in places, you know, that people didn't have a lot of access to it. So now we're going to ultimately see next year the fusion right. of a younger, more fun approach to the game of golf in this old traditional organization. Which is another reason I'm not sure Jay Monahan is long for this job. He does not seem like the young hip, I can envision golf being done in another way type of person to oversee this entity as CEO. Yeah, that's what's so funny too about the complexion of the players that ended up leaving to go to live and the ones that stayed on the tour. So you had right. some really young guys that went who probably didn't think they could make it on the tour. Then he had, you know, some guys toward the end of their career that right. were like, oh my God, I'm going to get a few million bucks guaranteed. I'm in. Yeah. Let's go. More than a few million. Right. But, you know, for for younger guys on the current PGA Tour, you know, the Scotty Schefflers and, you know, those types, the Will Zalatoris's and the, and the Morikawa's and the Xander Shoffley's and, you know, the guys who, you know, are generally in the top 20 you know, week in, week out. These are the, these will be the interesting stories to follow. Any yeah. of these guys that got offered big money, um, how does this come back to help them uh, more in the long run? Well, and I'm not plugging the show. I don't know anyone associated with this show, but there's the show Full Swing on Netflix. And reportedly they were rolling video on reactions from several of the players, including Rory, when they got this news. So that's going to be, Reality TV at its best and interesting to watch uh, what those raw reactions oh, were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you are a golf fan or just a sports fan or a sports business fan, Full Swing Season 2 is kind of a must watch. Yeah. Keith Foreman, co founder of Sports Business Radio, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you. When the world ends, we'll have you on right before, since we have you on only for like huge. Uh, earth shattering. That event. looks like next Thursday. Be the stang the fires <laughs> in Canada. And anyway, that's yeah, sorry. All right, you're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Underdog Fantasy is the easiest place to play fantasy sports, it's also the fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Your fantasy leagues might be over, but you can still play fantasy sports games on Underdog Fantasy. I love playing Pick'em and rivals. With Pick'em, you can pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. You can win 20 times your money in a single night. You pick between two and five players to build a Pick'em entry. Also, rivals pits two players against each other. That's a lot of fun too. It could be two players on the same team. It could be two players from other teams, points, rebounds, fantasy points, it's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying that with NBA games, especially right now. Sign up today with promo code SBR and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the App Store. And don't forget to register with my promo code SBR, like Sports Business Radio, to get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Must be 18 plus and present in a state where underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-522-4700 or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. 
My guest is Scott Reams, Nike historian emeritus, a close friend. I've known Scott for a long time. I used to do some consulting for Nike, and we've known each other for many years. He's been on Sports Business Radio before. I'd invite you to go back and listen to that lengthy conversation with lots of good information. Scott, how are you? Thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. I am great, Brian. Thanks for having me on again. It's good to see you. All right. So the movie Air came out recently and it stars yeah matt damon ben affleck viola davis jason bateman amongst others um you're the historian for nike let's start with did anyone from the movie consult with you or anyone at nike when making the movie not confer with me nor with my former colleagues in the archives department i know that for sure i've spoken with most people that would have potentially been uh, contacted and they all have said they've not been, they were not involved. The only person that seems to have had any contact was Howard White, okay, uh, who was contacted by Chris Tucker, who played Howard mm-hmm. in the movie. Uh, but that seemed to be more to get Howard's mannerisms and voice patterns and less so about getting the, the, the actual story, which is really incumbent upon an actor to get, you know, so I'm not surprised he wasn't asking about, did this really happen or that really happened? He was more you know, how do you speak? How do you, what's your voice sound like? You know, et, et cetera. And then he looked pretty good about getting that right. Yeah. And Sonny Vaccaro, who is really the central figure of the movie played by Matt Damon, it seems like everything is from his perspective. He did work at Nike. He went on and worked at Adidas. I think he worked at Reebok as well. But, you know, I think it's important that people know he didn't just work at Nike. He went on to other companies as well. That's correct. I'm not sure his employment status, if he was a consultant at every right. place or if he actually was an employee, but I was, I've been told he was a consultant at Nike, not actually an employee. I'm not, I, can, I can't really confirm that because I don't have access to the HR records, but he did work for, for Nike until 1991. Okay. All right. So let's play a little game of fact versus fiction here with the movie and look you know we're not trying to be the morality police here but i do think it's important when people see this movie to hear from someone like you who actually worked at nike knows the history of nike to know like what was kind of embellished in the typical hollywood way versus you know what is real and and what actually took place so let's start with uh, Sonny Vaccaro obviously identified Michael Jordan as a target of someone, you know, that, that Nike wanted to sign. Um, did he actually negotiate Michael Jordan's contract with his mom, played by Viola Davis in the movie? Is that fact or fiction? That's fiction. No, and I spoke with all of uh, Sonny's contemporaries from the eighties and, and, ba- and baseball, football, and so the other sports and every one of them confirmed that they would do the initial conversations with the athletes, you know, essentially put the, the hook in, start to, to talk about becoming a Nike athlete. And then Rob Strasser was the closer. They all called him the closer. He was the one that negotiated the deals. Uh, he negotiated this particular deal with David Falk and, uh, his boss, whose name escapes me at ProServe. And that, that was written about by. Michael Jordan in his book is written by David Bach in his book. It's written about in, in uh, Swoosh that Rob Strasser's widow wrote. Uh, and the interviews that we've done corroborate that as well. So that, that whole scene with signing 
the mom and the mom negotiating the contract was, I, I, I just sat there in the movie theater with my jaw open, like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, she's like in the kitchen, she answers the phone and, you know, it's like Matt Damon and Viola Davis negotiating this deal and Viola Davis pushing back on certain points. Um, so, right. yeah, and that even that interesting. Even that one's interesting as well, I guess is the best word to use because uh, they, you know, Matt Damon, so they could hear a response to her uh, demand and a request that Nike pay royalty for all the shoes that Jordan sell or sorry, all the shoes that Air Jordans that are sold. And it's not even Kira in the movie reacts like, well, that's a deal breaker. We, we, we don't do that. It's just not done in our industry. We've been doing that at Nike for 10 or for nine years. Rob Strasser started doing that with the pro club in 1975. So there were NBA athletes getting a royalty for the shoes that they wore going back almost a decade. So again, a little bit of homework and you would have said, well, that's, we can't put that in there because that didn't happen that way, but they did. But Scott, come on. It doesn't, the movie's not as Hollywood out if, if they right. actually, but you know, what? you know, like this does get to me a little bit brilliant is because when the movie did first come out and people, including even Phil Knight said to me, it's not a documentary. It's not a doc. You gotta keep it. It's entertainment. It's not a documentary, which I totally understand. Yet it's storytelling. Has bothered me is it's being reported now and quoted now, and people are essentially rewriting right. history now right. as if it were a documentary. And I've I've seen a couple of articles written about what a hard as nails brass negotiator, tough negotiator Dolores Jordan was, and that just isn't true. I mean, maybe she's now. I, I I've never met her, but in nineteen ninety or nineteen eighty four, excuse me, she didn't do that. You know, so it's when you, now you can't really report on this if it happened because it didn't. And so that's where I'm, I'm getting hit by both ends of the, it's not a documentary uh, uh, doors. Yeah. And by the way, David Falk has been on this show. And so you're saying just for our audience, Rob Strasser represented Nike, David Falk represented Michael Jordan. Those are the two that got this deal done. And another piece of fiction from the movie is David Falk actually is the one who came up with Air Jordan, right? Correct. And Rob Strasser said that in the book. Peter Moore told us that. So that whole thing about Peter Moore having the same, wanting to come up with the same name, they're like, well, let's just say you said it. Again, that, that never happened. Peter, Peter actually told us when he first heard of the name Air Jordan, that the first thing that came to his mind was the official airline of the country of Jordan. Right? So this is, <laughs> this is not was not his brainchild. And, and he, you know, he was, he laughed, you know, and he goes, that's why I, I, I mean, he was, our, he was Nike's creative director. He, he wasn't, you know, he was a guy that coined marketing terms. Right. Okay. So the other part of the movie that is really captivating is, you know, Matt Damon gets on a plane, he flies cross country from Oregon to North Carolina, and he just walks up to the Jordan's house and, and sees Mr. And Mrs. Jordan. You're saying, is that fact or fiction? A hundred percent fiction. And Sonny has even said it on subsequent radio shows. I think it was the Dan Patrick show or the Rich Eisen show. He admitted that that never happened. So why was that in the movie? Do you think it just embellishes the story? Well, again, I, this is just purely me conjecture since I, I don't know any of the people who were involved in the movie, but my assumption is that it was to give more of a role to a, an actress of the, the gravitas of Viola Davis yeah. to, and, you know, it's more, it's suspenseful. It, it's, it's kind of wonder dog. You know, the guy just told, no, don't do this. And he does it anyway. And big risk. 
Um, and then Viola Davis, you know, the actress playing Dolores Jordan gives her a, a meteor role. I mean, I did see the original screenplay that Affleck then later embellished and, and, and actually made better in my opinion. But the original screenplay had Dolores Jordan's role. I think it was like two lines, three, two or three lines. And essentially it was, you made a promise to go to Oregon to visit Nike. You're going to go to Nike or something like that. Yeah. And you, you can't really bring in an actress of Viola Davis's stature and have her deliver three lines or two lines. Right. So actually when the, the, you know, I've heard interviews with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, and they said they spoke with Michael Jordan about this project. And one of his requests was, I want Viola Davis to play my mom. Right. Which is fantastic. Right. But then uh, can you imagine Viola Davis getting this, this the original screenplay sent to her? And she's like, and that's all I say. Right. You know, so, and I, I don't think Affleck even did that. I'm sure he said, we can't, we've got to increase her role in the movie. Again, this is my con- conjecture. I can't, I can't con- confirm that, but that just that seems logical to me. So to create additional scenes was uh, in order to make it more of a role for her. Right. Okay. So we've already established that Sonny Vaccaro strongly advocated that Nike sign Michael Jordan. That is fact, 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 fact. Yes. The part that it seems like is fiction and you can confirm is that Nike bet its entire endorsement budget in 1984 on citing Michael Jordan, like they said in the movie. Is that fact or fiction? That's also uh, fiction. Uh, we also sent a guy named Charles Barkley in 1984. Okay. Uh, and there were other lesser athletes. Originally, I had said that we'd cite John Stockton in 1984, and I was corrected on that. We signed him later. He signed with another brand and then switched to us. So I, I was mistaken there, but he definitely signed with Charles Barkley. Or we signed Charles Barkley in 1984 as well. So uh, it wasn't quite the all-in. And, they, and it wasn't it wasn't a make or break in terms of Nike basketball uh, being potentially cut by the board of directors. And I spoke with Bob Waddell and others who were on the board in 1984, and they basically said, no, that was never on the table. And, I, and Phil Knight would have told us about to, and we would never have told him what to do, especially in the early days of the board. So again, that was mostly created, I think, to uh, to, to generate more drama, more uh, do or die, you know, it's, it's, it's more in peril, but if, if the whole brand's going to like basketball going to be cut completely, then the Jordan brand of Jordan, well, Jordan brand later has got to succeed, you know? So, right. Okay. The pitch meeting is also one of the culminating parts of the movie air. And again, you've got all the main characters in there. You've got, you know, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Jason Bateman, Chris Tucker, Viola Davis. Um, I'm not sure who played Michael Jordan. We didn't really hear that actor say anything and you didn't really see that actor's face. You just saw from behind. But, you know, again, that was a big part of the movie. And in the movie, Sonny Vaccaro takes over the presentation and, and makes this impassioned speech. Fact or fiction, did that really happen? That was fiction. He, two people I spoke with who were in the room, one named Mike Castor, who's not, he's not even on the radar of the, of the people that did the movie because he, he's probably one of the only people in the room who doesn't ever have any, or never has never claimed to have been a role in saying Michael Jordan. He was more there just to, as a footwear guy and was also running the, 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 pr- the presentation on from an AV standpoint. I have all said that Peter, well, Rob mainly and Peter did the entire presentation. In fact, a couple of people I talked to said, yeah, I think Sonny was there. I don't remember that he said anything. Beyond you know, the other the hellos and everything, so I, again when that happened, I was rather surprised because that was a major deviation from 
everyone, every, the, the re recollection of everyone else we've spoken with, and again, from the books that were written, that never happened. I got to ask this. I, I, we're going to keep playing the game of fact or fiction, but <laughs> other than potentially someone like you, who would have been the best person for Ben and Matt to consult with when making this movie? Like who knew everything that went down? Was it Phil? Is it, is it, you know, Rob Strasser's not with us anymore. Like who would have been the best person at Nike for them to consult with? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I wasn't even there either. I mean, I started in 1992, but as you can imagine, the signing of Michael Jordan from, a, from the archives uh, standpoint was a story that we wanted to make sure we nailed. Right. Um, but yeah, Phil Knight wouldn't necessarily, he would have known a lot of it secondhand. He, his role was actually overplayed in the movie too. He was not involved on a regular basis. He was running a company at a time when it was not, you know, leaking some oil, right? He was having some, a lot of issues. So babysitting or trying to find or watch over one new athlete to be signed, even if he was going to be a potentially a major athlete, was not accurate in the way Phil, in the way Phil actually spent 1984. So I don't think he would have known a lot of that. Peter Moore and Rob, yes, they would have known. Unfortunately, both of them, you know, Peter passed away roughly, I think, just as the movie was, uh, was starting to in production. So, you know, even Howard White was not as involved until, until really the, the rubber hit the road with the, the going forward. Uh, George Ramling may have known a lot more. George is actually the person that Michael has, has publicly credited as saying he is the reason why, mm -hmm. or George is the reason why Michael signed with Nike. He and Peter, or he and Rob Strasser, those are the two that, that Michael Jordan, and of course, Jordan would, would know again, he would know his role. There's really no, since Strasser's death, I, I would say if he were alive, Rob would be the one that could most likely potentially talk about pretty much the entire uh, way that it unfolded. And Rob Strasser is played by Jason Bateman in the movie, right? right? Which, we, do you want to get into casting? Because that was a shocker too. I mean, Rob, Rob, I never met Rob. He died a year after I started with Nike. Uh, but his nickname was Rolling Thunder, and he, he was at least, I was told, told to 300, 320 pounds, depending on who you talk to, but not fat, just he was a very large man. He was, I think he was like also 6'4", six, 6'3". Six, he was imposing and called Rolling Thunder because he was very bombastic. He didn't, hold, he didn't miss words. He would have been a walking HR violation today because he, I mean, he was known for throwing things at meetings and, and just being very thunderous let's say and and i love jason jason bateman i mean michael bluth in arrested development is one of my all-time favorite characters but that during the movie all i kept thinking was this is michael bluth playing rob strasser and not rolling thunder you know so it was, it was that was to me a big surprise that they would cast jason in, in that particular role total side note as i understand it rob strasser's daughter works for nike or worked for nike is that correct that is correct. Avery, yes, she does. So you would think she might know some of the the history. I mean, I know she was a little girl when this pitch meeting took place, but, you know, maybe her dad communicated some of the stories of, of you know, how that all went down with her as she grew older. I have no idea. I don't know. I, I reached out to her and she didn't respond. So, and I'm, I heard through other people that that was it just, it was an overwhelming type of thing for her to, to deal with with all the, yeah, publicity and everything with her, about her dad. You know, actually, one other person that does come to mind, Brian, will be Julie Strasser, Rob's widow. I mean, she mm -hmm. inter she was there at the company, and she also interviewed Rob. She told me she has 
dozens of hours of a videotape or audio tape of Rob's uh, recollections and, and what, what he was doing at Nike during his years. And, and most of that matriculated into the, the book Swoosh, the unauthorized biography of Nike. Uh, and we tried really hard within my old department to not use that kind of like, like Wikipedia. We didn't want it to be, we don't want, we wanted to make our own sourcing. So we did as many of our own interviews as possible. Uh, for the, like for the Jordan story, we interviewed, you know, everybody that we could, Peter, Howard, George, you know, et cetera. Um, and we obviously couldn't interview Rob, but when we finished doing our story, then I went back and I read the account of how Julie had captured it in her, in their book, in her book. And it's remarkably insane. I mean, it's, it's pretty much, I mean, we didn't, again, we didn't have the tapes that she did with Rob. And we also didn't have Sonny Vichero's voice. We, we've interviewed, we, we've interviewed, pardon me, we've uh, requested or sent him a request several times over the years to, to sit down with us and he's never responded, which is unfortunate. Nike has all this history that you've gathered. Um, and I know Phil has written his book, Shoe Dog. Do you ever see a day where you take the archives and do an authorized documentary of Nike with all of the assets that you've gathered over the years. By you, you mean Nike or you mean me? Because I'm no Nike. On that. No, I, I don't. I don't know what Nike's plans were. I certainly advocated when I was there. I mean, I was a historian for 17 years, right? And I advocated for a more direct to the consumer, more public uh, access for our storytelling. And for a variety of reasons, some financial, some uh, proprietary, they there was just a reluctance to do that. I, I understand they're actually starting to do, look at maybe doing some original content that they'll publish uh, on YouTube or, and other potential uh, locations, which is to me great. Uh, in terms of like an entire Nike history, like like basically swoosh the authorized biography of Nike. I don't know. I mean, I if anything would have if it would have happened, I would have hoped it would have happened for the 50th anniversary, which was last year right and there was talk well even before i retired there was talk about a book i went to meetings about uh books and it just never it never got any traction there, I mean, there's a lot of uh legal hoops that would have to be jumped through with rights and issues and permissions and so it, it may just be one of those things like it's just bigger than anybody wants to to tackle i, I don't know but if there were ever to be one i would certainly be the first in line to to help out if i possibly could yeah, that would be fantastic. All right, a few more minutes left, and I want to go through a few more fact or fiction things with the movie Air. So uh, in the movie, Matt Damon says to Viola Davis, who plays Dolores Jordan, here's exactly how the meetings with Converse and Adidas are going to go down. And, you know, Nike's last on the list. So, um, you know, they have the benefit of having the last word, so to say. Um, did that actually take place where Sonny told Michael Jordan's mom, this is what to look for in those meetings. This is what they're going to promise you. But then when you get to us, like, this is what we're going to deliver. The way it's portrayed, it's more of a, if they, if I am accurate and how they present to you, then will you please give Nike a shot or something along mm -hmm. those lines? And it's great movie. It's great movie, uh, drama. All I can tell you, I don't know whatever Sunday study ever actually said to Dolores, but all I can tell you is that uh, Michael and his family came to Nike first. So before there was a presentation made by Reebok or by Adidas, they had come to visit Nike. Um, then they went to, to found, or went to, re, uh, let's see, they went to, yeah, it was then it was, re, and then Adidas, according to the 
book swoosh, they never went to the, the, the family or David Falk met with the Adidas folks. So that's all I know. I mean, in terms of what I've learned and, and the way, the way the history unfolded, it was, it was, we, the Nike was the first presentation. Not, there was no quid pro quo of, if I predict what the presentations will be, you'll come to us. And when I say Nike, I'm mean, Reebok, I meant Converse, excuse me. And it's it's interesting to note that in college at North Carolina, Michael Jordan was a big Adidas guy. So if you just went with what he wore in college and, you know, who he had a brand affinity to in college, it was Adidas, right? Well, he worked well, North Carolina with Converse, but according to what we were told, as soon as the game was over and off court everywhere else, we was not contractually, well, he was never contractually obligated, but. Uh, North Carolina was that he would wear Converse on the during the games when he wore Adidas afterwards, and he and it was pretty. I mean, that's that's part is true that he was hundred percent planning to sign with Adidas. Uh, wow. And he even said that the money was even close. He said that he wanted Nike. I mean, he wanted to to sign with Adidas. And for what we learned later, uh, Adidas never intended to go more than a hundred or hundred and ten or hundred fifty thousand, something like that. And, and our offer was more than double that. So it's really ironic. Uh, for those listening, and I was around for the LeBron chase and saw that with my own two eyes because that's when I was consulting with Nike. Here are two athletes in Michael Jordan and LeBron James that Nike kind of swooped in at the end and, and got. And neither LeBron nor Michael Jordan at first blush were uh, going to sign with Nike, but they ended up signing with Nike in the end. Okay, so... One of the other parts of the movie and kind of the legends of Michael Jordan's rookie season is the Air Jordan is developed. You know, he's a rebel. The shoe's a rebel. It's banned by the NBA. Did Nike say, hey, look, we'll pay the fine if Michael Jordan gets fined for wearing these shoes uh, for the Chicago Bulls? That is fictiony truthy. I mean, there's it's it's a little bit twisted and I'll, 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 I'll unravel it for you a little bit. So the part where they show them deliberately all saying, let's add more red, let's add more red because the NBA is going to fine us $5,000 a game. That's not true. That, that, uh, that was, there was no premeditation. There, I think they may have known there was a color, uh, rule or, or restriction, but there was, there was no way that they would know what the reaction of the NBA was. And then Ben and, and, the Simon McCure would not have been, he was not a footwork developer or designer. So he would never have been a part of that conversation. What was true was the shoe that was brought, that, that Jordan did wear, had the colors, the black and the red uh, in abundance, uh, did violate that NBA rule. And the NBA did uh, fine $1,000 or fine Jordan $1,000. And at that point, Rob Strasser did say what everyone has told me. He goes, well, shoot, I'll just write a check now for $80,000 if we're going to get fined $1,000 a game. Well, David Stern came back with the, uh, raising the ante and said, no, it'll be, if it happens again, it'll be 5,000. And if it happens again after that, he either said 10,000 or he said Jordan would be suspended. And so basically it was, you know, Stern basically said, I've got you, you know, game over. And so that's when Nike backed off and they created a, a shoe that was a colorway that was more you know, legal or whatever the term is for uh, uh, what the NBA agreed or was at the time. But in the meantime, Strasser did take advantage of that publicity and, and create the NBA's banning the shoe ad. And that created a ton of interest in the, in the shoe and the shoe itself. It's funny the ad was not the air Jordan. It was the airship because the air Jordan had, wasn't ready yet. 
Um, again, that's what, uh, some of the folks who are longtime Nike and footwear people before at that in the movie that, you know, they're going to create a shoe from scratch in, this, in a matter of weeks. Right. Um, you know, and have it there in the, in the, for the presentation. And that, that just, that doesn't happen. I don't even, I get, maybe it could happen today. I have no idea, but back then the shoe was not ready uh, for that meeting or for that presentation. It was more of the concepts and the drawings. And it was, it was not the, I mean, again, I, I love my, my Nike colleagues and, and design, but the first original Jordan wasn't exactly the, the, uh, be all end all the greatest shoe ever made. It was essentially a, an amalgam of other shoes put together in order to have a shoe ready that was unique to Jordan, but not, not from scratch, like this beautiful thing that came from down on high, you know, delivered with the angels kind of thing. And that was part we all laughed at. So you are as familiar with Nike's history as any person on the planet, I would think. You just said 17 years you were the historian. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in my opinion, Michael Jordan is the most important athlete that Nike has ever signed. And, and I would say, I don't think Nike would be the company that it is today if it had not signed Michael Jordan. Would you agree with that? That's fair. I mean, it's, it's all a matter of degree, right? I mean, Steve Prefontaine served a huge purpose in the seventies when the brand was just running for the most part. We had some other, some other sports, but Pre's role then was critical. And then, you know, probably then McEnroe in terms of now having somebody in a more mainstream sport, another running's not mainstream, but you know what I mean? And you're seeing him on TV, you're seeing him at the USA right. and you're seeing him in commercials. Uh, and yeah, and then Jordan at 84. That's when the shoe, I mean, McEnroe, only the hardcore people could name the shoe that he, he played in. You're right. Jordan, as we know now, went from an athlete to a shoe, to an apparel line, to be a brand and now to essentially its own company. I mean, it's really, it's own, like a $5 billion corporation. That's just crazy. I mean, that's, there's no precedent for that. Yeah. I mean, it really is amazing. He hasn't played an NBA game in what? Two decades. It was 2002 when he retired for the third time or whatever it was. Yeah, I think. So yeah, it's been 20 years. And still has the best-selling shoe of any athlete on the planet. And like you said, it's not just a shoe; it's a whole line. It's a company. It's it's apparel. It's shoes. It's seen as the gold standard by most mm -hmm. of athlete product. So. When you've been gone from the hardwood that long and you still are selling product at this level, it's really astonishing. And so you're right. In terms of overall legacy and, and just imprint, it's hard to imagine another athlete. Uh, again, you can play ahead up to the end of time. Like, well, what if so-and-so didn't do it? What if the light didn't do this? You know, but, but yeah, Jordan, Jordan's ascension and then the Nike explosion. I mean, Nike really got it's grew going, going on in the nineties. Right. I mean, we went from 3 billion in revenue, annual revenue in 91, I think. Or, and then we were like by 97, 98, we're at 9 billion. Right. So we tripled our revenue at the same time that the bulls were winning. And, you know, there were a lot of other things going on as well, but I mean, Michael Johnson, the gold shoe, 96 Olympics. I mean, it was a great decade for Nike. Um, 98 tiger. What's that? 98 tiger comes along. Right. But it was 96. Yeah. He was 96. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we signed, we signed Brazil uh, in football. We signed Tiger and golf. The, the, the Atlanta Olympics are just a, a metal fest for Nike. So that all was going on at the same time. And that was, uh, 
you know, so then and Jordan, as I said, was starting to, the, the Bulls are really clicking, winning their six championships. So it was an amazing decade for the company. Well, I'll tell you this, as someone, again, who was inside the, the walls at Nike for a number of years myself, I hope at some point the authorized documentary of Nike comes out. I know you said there's a lot of red tape and legalities and all of that stuff, but I know just from talking to you and others, you've gathered some incredible artifacts and testimonials and information, and you're in a great position to be able to tell the story of one of the most influential companies of the last hundred years. And, you know, with all the documentaries that are out there, like this is one that I would really want to see. Well, I hope you're right. And, and I mean, I know Shoe Dog, Phil, Phil has uh, the rights to Shoe Dog out to a, a production company. I, I, was, I was actually helping to work on that too before I retired in October 21. But I, I, I think COVID, I think a lot of things have uh, slowed it down. And, and then air kind of slipped in and slipped and got out. So I don't know. You could look at it two ways. One, okay, we've now done a Nike movie. We don't really need to see another one. Or, wow, people really like that movie. Air, we should, what else do we have related to Nike? And, and Shoe Dog would certainly, I like the idea of Shoe Dog because firmly, first off, it's Phil's recollection. So we can certainly fact check it a lot more easily. Mm-hmm. In fact, I already did when I was working with him <laughs> on the book. Um, but it would also be focused more on the 60s and the 70s because the, the book, ends when the company goes public in, in December of 1980. So you'd be able to do essentially an air treatment of the early days, but do it with the 60s and the 70s, which I think would be fascinating. Because that, to be fair, so I, again, I, I, don't, I don't tell people not to see air. I think it's actually an interesting movie and it's enjoyable. Uh, and one of the reasons why uh, that's the case is they nail, and I've heard this from a number of people, except I didn't work for Nike in, in 1984, but they told me that they nailed the the atmosphere, the feeling, the the overall, maybe not the actual look. I mean, the business, the offices didn't look exactly the same, but they were pretty spot on in terms of capturing the the, the vibe, if you will. And, I, and again, I heard that from Phil. I heard that from a lot of people. So that was cool. And I would love, yeah, I would just imagine if they could do the same thing in the 60s and the 70s with Prefontaine and you know, and, and, and the whole, the vibe of the company when it was really, really, really revelly and small and you know, a handful of people trying to make things work would be so much fun to be a part of. So my money is on, I hope, on Shoe Dog, hopefully getting into the, into production, either on a Netflix series or, or as a motion picture, that would be amazing. Yeah, it would be amazing. Um, all right, we'll end on this. I mean, even though Air wasn't authorized by Nike, I have talked to people that work at Nike still and, you know, it was screened on campus and mm-hmm. people there. So, so it wasn't like it was like, oh, my gosh, we're insulted by this movie and no. don't have anything to do with it. And if we find out any of our employees are watching this, we're going <laughs> to fire you. Like, no, it, no, it, no. Was, it was received to the point where it was, it was at least screened on campus and employees were able to to watch it. Oh, absolutely. There were a number. In fact, that's why I've seen the movie so many times because I've been asked to go. Um, there was a couple of theaters that had private screenings. They would essentially let the, the Nike, uh, a Nike department buy out the entire uh, show. And then we would go watch it. And then afterwards, we'd have a Q&A and talk about it. So, again, it's not. No, I don't think any the, the people have the biggest issues with it in my history and my talking with folks are the people who knew Rob and Peter. Uh, either very personally or, or new, uh, they they're they're angry or they're upset because they feel like their 
Peter and Rob's roles have been diminished or outright, you know, purloined and given to Sonny and that bothers them. And, and that I, I can understand. I mean, what Rob did to sign Jordan and, and get that contract was, was game changing. Like we just talked about and to then retroactively throw it all on Sonny. It just isn't, it's just not right. You know? And so that's, if, if there's any reason why I do these interviews, uh, besides of course, enjoying your company, it is to make sure that the, the record is straight and the people that, that were, uh, instrumental in getting this done, get their proper due. If, if Hollywood wants to have a little fun with it from that point, that's fine. But it's, it was a little surprising that a lot of the stuff in that movie was all given to, to Sonny Vaccaro's story or character when it was mostly Rob. Yeah. So they get Matt Damon to play Rob or uh, Rob Strasser and then we're, you know, we're all set. Yeah. Scott Reams, Nike historian, emeritus, and friend of the show and friend of mine. Thank you so much for joining us and setting the record straight on all of this. And it's just great to get your perspective. Well, thank you. I enjoyed, I do enjoy talking about it, but yeah, it's, it's been a bait of, not the bait. It's been a big part of my life for the past two months. So, you know, I'm glad that I'm glad to move on to other things. Yeah. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. There's nothing common about you. Now your talent, your drive, your achievements, or even your challenges. You need distinctive financial strategies that match your lifestyle and career trajectory. Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment was created to address your specific needs at every stage of your career and deliver the financial education and strategies you need to help advance your game plan. They speak the language. They know your business. Morgan Stanley will work with you to achieve your goals. I've trusted Morgan Stanley with my personal wealth management for almost 20 years. Visit Morgan Stanley at morganstanley.com backslash GSE. That's morganstanley.com backslash GSE. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks to the Sports Business Radio team, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, Colby Ackerman, and from our friends at CG Sports, CG Young and Nicole Wardle. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.